Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Raff. I'm Monish Raff. Uh, we've got a great topic today, uh, the, the, the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, which is the highest tribunal within the administrative law portion of OSHA law, uh, issued a decision recently, only a little bit more than a month ago, uh, involving uh, an OSHA citation against an employer under the general duty clause involving uh, heat stress as an alleged hazard. And it's a fascinating case. I, along with a number of OSHA uh, colleagues here at Keller and Heckman, strolled over from our offices here in Washington, D.C. last summer to the Review Commission to sit in on the hearings. And so when the decision came out, uh, I think it was an interesting decision. And, and because of such an interesting development, we, we selected this as our topic for this month's OSHA 3030. And I'm grateful that I, I'm joined in our discussion on this case by two great OSHA attorneys and friends, Larry Halperin, who's a partner here at Keller and Heckman, and John Gustafson, also here in the Washington office at Keller and Heckman. Larry Halperin, whose name is known anywhere in the country as one of the leading lights in OSHA law, uh, has, has done a lot of work specifically with regard, well, he's done a lot of work in, in every uh, U.S. OSHA state as well as in all of the state plan states over his several decades of OSHA law experience and on virtually every aspect of OSHA law, but also in particular uh, here on the specific subject of, of OSHA's allegations of heat stress or heat ex uh, exposure to heat stress. So with that said, uh, I'm grateful to you, Larry, for joining us today. Thank you, Manish. Pleasure to be here. And John Gustafson, thank you as well for joining us. Thank you, Manish. Well, so guys, I think that before we get into the topics that we're going to discuss today, I'd like to point out that uh, we've been doing this, we're in our seventh calendar year of doing the OSHA 3030 every month, uh, about every 30 days, and we cover a new topic in about 30 minutes, and all of our prior programs are libraried on the Keller and Heckman site, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030, so take a look through them, much of the content there is extremely uh, valuable, instructive, still highly relevant uh, and current, and so so there's a lot of information there, and I welcome you to check it out. Uh, as many of you know, we do this program as a live web webinar, but we also reprise it as a podcast, and so if you subscribe to the OSHA 3030 podcast, you can get it on the go, and uh, you'll notice that those that are libraried are the webinars, so you get the slides and the audio. The audio is still extremely helpful uh, as a podcast, and when you do listen to the podcast, please remember to like or rate the podcast so that it's searchable by others. Finally, before we get going, I'd say, as many of you heard me say in the past, that when you get an invitation to the next OSHA 3030, please forward that email on to at least three other uh, colleagues who are safety and health professionals, industrial hygienists, in-house uh, general counsel responsible for compliance with occupational safety and health law so that they can benefit from the rich content that's provided in this ongoing program to our uh, firm's clients and friends uh, because the word of mouth is, is vital to making sure the program keeps going. With that said, why don't we start by talking about what we're going to talk about. John, tell us what's, uh, what we have in store today. Sure, Manish. Thanks. Um, we are first going to talk of, discuss the facts of this case, A.H. Uh, Sturgill Roofing Company. Um, we're going to get into the background on the general duty clause 
specifically the elements of a violation of the general duty clause and a little and we'll provide a little more depth on the elements that are at issue in this case we'll go through OSHA's allegations and contentions in the case how the administrative law judge decided the case reviewed the citations and then finally how uh, the commission uh, opined on the case Uh, we'll then talk about heat stress generally and how it should be regulated if it should be regulated by osha and then finally we'll we'll talk about what employers can do to uh, mitigate their risks here so let's get into the facts of this case so sturgill which we'll call it for short is a contractor uh, working here in Dayton, Ohio, they remove here. They were removing uh, buildings, a bank building's roof covering. This is in the middle of summer in August 2012. Uh, employees generally were working in full sunshine, 18 feet off the ground. Uh, the on the day in question, the supervisor on the site knew that it was a hot and humid day. He encouraged the use of water, rest, and shade. Uh, and, and he used 11 employees on this day. Now, eight of the employees were regular employees of Sturgill, but three of the employees were temporary employees. Uh, and one of those temporary employees, we'll call him MR, that's what the commission Uh, abbreviated his name as. It was his first day on the job, and so he missed the in-depth training that the permanent employees received. The foreman gave him the least strenuous task on this roof. This had been, they were uh, removing the roof, uh, by the way. So the MR had stated that he did prior roofing work, but because it was his first day on the job and because he didn't have tools with him, uh, the foreman gave him the least strenuous task. Now, uh, we should talk about what that was. In in our opinion, it may not have been a, uh, it may have been fairly strenuous. The the employees were taking Ten pound chunks of rubber, removing ten pound chunks of rubber, which is the top layer of the roof, and then the one to two pound chunks of styrofoam. Um, and and MR's duty was to stand near the edge of the roof, receive these carts of uh, rubber and styrofoam from the rest of the employees, and then lift the lift the pieces out of the cart, throw them over a 39-inch uh, parapet wall uh, down into the dumpster or uh, pile next to the bank. Yeah, John, let, let me add. So you've got a layer of styrofoam, a layer of rubber, 11 employees. We don't have the transcript, but it it sounds like he was the person designated to do this. There's no indication that we can tell from a 
opinion that anybody else was actually throwing these pieces over the wall. Right. So if that's the case, we've got nine or ten guys cutting pieces of roof. We don't know what size the roof was. But effectively, you've got a guy who's standing next to a cart throwing effectively alternating, let's say, between one and two and ten-pound dumbbells over a 39-inch wall. Uh, the reason we're stressing this is because there was a large dispute about whether this was strenuous work. So I think if, if this is really the accurate description and somebody's throwing half the time for five hours... 10-pound dumbbells over a wall, except they're not dumbbells with a nice, easy grip. They're cut-up pieces of rubber that you'd have to grab and do the best you can to get your hands on. Sounds like a reasonably strenuous job to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so this employee, MR, he, sh- he showed up on his, this first day wearing all-black clothing. Uh, so sounds like nobody told him or, or we didn't see in the commission and, commission decision, any evidence that anybody told him not to wear black clothing on the top of a roof on a hot day. Um, The employees were encouraged to take breaks, uh, but the foreman said uh, if he couldn't, couldn't do the work, if he couldn't do it. And there was evidence in the record that uh, this foreman had previously let employees go if they couldn't do the work. So there may have been a shade of a warning there. Um, You know, we'll let you have the break, but you might not come back after that. So. And then there's two factors that are relevant that the employer would not normally have known about. This gentleman was 60 years old, had uh, congestive heart failure, which means poor circulation. So if the person was exposed to a heat condition, the body would not have the normal functioning in terms of transferring the heat away from the body through perspiration or any other method. That's right. So the the work site had some shady areas. They were encouraged to uh, work in the shade if possible. And the, But these shady areas were uh, as a result of piles of material that had built up around the roof. And MR was not near a pile. Uh, And by the time he collapsed, it was close to midday, and so the sun would have been almost directly overhead, uh, reducing the amount of shade that the in which the employees could take refuge. So he started the day. Everybody started the day at 6.30 a.m., and they worked until 1130, uh, at which point MR uh, stumbled around, collapsed, was, was taken to the ER, and then three weeks later he died from heat stroke complications, and he had a core body temperature of 105 degrees Fahrenheit. As opposed to somewhere around 98.6. That's right. Mm-hmm. So oh, one more quick fact worth noting, um, the, the foreman, the empl- other employees observed that MR was not talking uh, bef- shortly before his collapse, so they told the foreman, uh, you know, maybe you want to go check on MR. The foreman went over and asked him how he was doing. 
MR said he was okay. He didn't need to take a break. Uh, the the foreman didn't press him to take a break or hydrate. And then 20 minutes later, he had his collapse. So OSHA went ahead and issued two citations. Right. So one was the general duty clause citation for basically exposing an employee to exp- actually employees. To, it was a theory of been all of them to excessive heat from working on this commercial roof in the direct sunlight, the usual scenario where the conditions were such that it would cause a significant risk of uh, harm, in this case, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, potentially death. Um, And OSHA alleged that was demonstrated by the National Weather Service heat index data and the testimony that they were going to develop from their expert about the fact this person was exposed to heat stress and conditions that would cause a serious illness and that the employer hadn't implemented any, well, adequately implemented appropriate preventive measures. And then OSHA identified five measures or methods, I should say, which could have been used to reduce the risk and potentially prevent this condition. The point should be made, though, that the idea is when OSHA issues one of these citations, the basis should be that there's a condition that's exposing the employee body at large or at least some group of individuals, and it really isn't simply because this one individual has heat stroke and suffered a fatality. The second citation was basically under the construction standard, unlike the general industry standard, there is a generic training provision under the construction standards. It basically says you have to train employees about the risks to which they're likely to be exposed in performing their work. And the allegation was there was no training on heat illness and heat-related illnesses given to this particular employee, at least, by the uh, employer. And the, the thing to keep in mind is this individual was a temporary who came without supervision and therefore the host employer becomes the employer of this temporary employee and takes on full responsibilities of the employer's obligations under the OSH Act. And here's a quick review of the general the language of the general duty clause. Each employer shall furnish to each of his employees employment and a place of employment which are free from recognized hazards that are causing or are likely to cause death or serious physical harm to employees. And so let's look at the uh, elements of a general duty clause violation. And as you can see from these elements, uh, this goes back to what Larry was just saying, that this is about a, uh, a general workplace hazard or a, a hazardous condition uh, that all, ex- all employees are exposed to. This is not just about this one fatality. So these are the, these are the five uh, elements of a general duty clause violation. Um, and numbers one and four in particular here, I'll flag for you because those are, um, at issue in this case, but quickly, uh, the secretary needs to show that, uh, a conditioner activity in the workplace presented a hazard that the industry or the employer recognized 
that this hazard existed uh, exists that the hazard was causing or likely to cause death or serious harm that there was a feasible and effective means to reduce the hazard and the the idea here is of course that the employer failed to implement those abatement measures and that the employer knew or uh, sh- should have known of the non-compliant conditions of the workplace. Right. Every once in a while, the, the fifth element seems to get lost in, in various opinions. But the idea is that item two is more of a generic recognition of the hazard existing potentially in the workplace. And then five gets to whether it was really there under these particular conditions. So honing in on those that first and fourth element, uh, the the commission quoted old older commission precedent in and explained what these mean exactly. Uh, so what is a condition or activity in the workplace that presents a hazard? Well, uh, in order to show, in order to uh, prove that that hazard is present, the labor secretary must show that the condition exposes exposed employees to a significant risk of harm, uh, which is was defined in one cited case to mean a meaningful possibility of injury. Now, that doesn't mean that an injury is likely, but it does mean that if an incident, incident were to occur, it would cause uh, or be likely to cause death or serious harm. And then that fourth element we're looking at, uh, abatement measures, um, the, the secretary must show that they existed, that effective measures existed, and there's a, there's a burden shift that happens in this, in this proof here. Uh, the employer has to show that it took measures um, to address the alleged hazard, and then it's up to the secretary to show that the employer's measures were not adequate to address the hazard. Okay, so, so turning to the, the, if you want to call it the critical facts of this particular case, the evidence was brought in and largely centered on the National Weather Service heat index, which c- creates four categories, caution, extreme caution, danger, and extreme danger. And then those, that particular zone, of that level of potential harm, is tied to temperature and humidity. So one of the big disputes in this case was, okay, what's the relevant temperature and humidity? Everybody agreed on what the humidity was based on measurements, but when it came to the temperature, um, in addition to the actual, if you want to call it, dry bulb temperature that you can measure if you take your thermometer out and stick it in in the shade right next to yourself and to just get a reading, the readings went from 79 around 9 o'clock up to 83, about 11.53. Uh, <clears throat> so if you look at those particular temperatures on that index with that relative humidity, you get a heat index of 84, 85, 84, which puts you in a caution zone. And then there's no further definition 
on this particular index of what that means, which the Review Commission indicated was a problem because we've got terms caution, extreme caution, danger, extreme danger, which don't have any separate meanings. Uh, in a later version of this document, it says that in the caution zone, fatigue is possible with prolonged exposure and physical activity. That doesn't sound like something all that serious. Now, if you read the note at the bottom of the slide, I hope it's not hidden, it basically says that since heat index values are devised for shady light wind conditions, exposure to full sun would justify adjusting that temperature by as much as 15 degrees. And there was a discussion, you want to call it, in the ALJ's decision and certainly the Review Commission decision about whether a 15 degree adjustment should be made and if so, how much. And in this particular case, um, OSHA's expert recommended it be adjusted upward by seven and a half degrees. The ALJ actually adjusted it up 15 degrees and said, therefore, the, uh, the particular activity actually got into the danger zone. Um, it's not clear. In any event, there, there was no clear testimony on how someone would make the, the adjustment of that 15 degrees or some portion of that 15 degrees. And that was, a, if you want to call it, one of the fatal problems. The other thing is if you read this chart, it says likelihood of heat disorders with prolonged exposure or strenuous activity. Then the issue becomes, well, was there a prolonged exposure or strenuous activity? Uh, we, we've already suggested that throwing 10-pound dumbbells over a wall for five hours would seem strenuous. Um, somehow that, that's not the picture that was presented at the hearing. The judge concluded the activity was strenuous, but didn't really explain why. So we have OSHA asserting that the heat index by itself establishes a hazard, putting it in the caution zone. And if you add 15 degrees, then you get into the danger zone. OSHA certainly asserted the work was strenuous and prolonged. Um, unfortunately for OSHA, fortunately for the employer, OSHA did never did not bring any evidence in as to whether that was going to be a full eight-hour shift. So basically, in a sense, OSHA only brought in evidence from the time that MR started work until the time MR collapsed. And the focus was more on MR's exposure in that particular event rather than what the exposure would have been had someone been working for eight hours under those conditions without, let's say, heat illness training and all the other things that would go along with it. So instead of focusing on the entire workforce and how much hydrating they were doing or how much shade time any of those individuals were getting, the entire focus was on this particular individual and never got to the point of evidencing how many hours a person actually would have worked. There was no effort to identify the square footage of the roof or how many pounds of rubber this individual was actually tossing over this five-hour period. So basically what happened is the judge concluded the work was strenuous but never provided a lot of physical 
evidence, if you want to call it that, or calculations or mathematical analysis to support it. And that gave the Review Commission an opportunity to conclude it wasn't strenuous. Um, and in terms of, uh, like I said, strenuous wasn't defined in the, the National Weather Service document. Um, prolonged work hour wasn't defined in the document. So what happened is the uh, ALJ found that the conditions were met to use that National Service work, Weather Service chart. And the uh, on review, the Review Commission decided the chart didn't apply because no one had established that the conditions uh, were met of having either prolonged <clears throat> work or strenuous work activity. Uh, so the the administrative law judge also affirmed the training citation, that second citation, um, saying that the that the employer did not instruct the employee in the recogni recognition of unsafe conditions. Um, the they did not. The employer did not instruct the employees as a reasonably prudent employer would have, um, and therefore uh, this employer failed to meet the standard uh, for training. Now, you'll notice here that unsafe conditions is a predicate uh, for this violation, and so when the general duty clause violation was established, and uh, and the ha the present hazard. Remember that first element. The pr the hazard was present. Uh, that that established the predicate for this training citation. So we get to the commission's decision. The commission finds that the uh, secretary did not make the case, uh, and it reversed the the administrative law judge on both violations. Uh, the, the commission found that the, uh, that the secretary did not prove prolonged exposure or strenuous activity. Actually, interestingly, the, the commission resorted to looking at a different interpretation or an interpretation of, of the word, the meaning of strenuous uh, that may not have been consistent with the National Weather Service chart, so it's kind of unclear whether those matched up. Um, but the commission also found that the, the administrative law judge had no basis for adding 15 degrees to the heat index to get to that danger zone, and that, the, uh, and that the, their expert, uh, expert who testified on behalf of OSHA, did not support his... Uh, assertion that 7.5 degrees should be added with uh, meaningful scientific analysis. Um, and so really, Larry, I think part of the issue here is that the that OSHA just failed to make make the case. And maybe they could have, but they didn't uh, they didn't present a strong enough case to meet the elements here. That's, that's the way I would read it. I, I don't know if they would have prevailed, but certainly any time the temperature is over 80 and you have high humidity, it seems like there's a potential 
certainly if there was one way to look at it is to look at the National Weather Service Index and assuming that that is a, a valid basis for proceeding and that that would certainly be an issue too. Um, then the problem gets to be that you need someone who's going to be able to explain how to deal with that 15 degree adjustment. And that wasn't done. The effect of the person wearing dark clothing was not discussed in terms of whether it was loose or tight. The amount of work that was actually being done wasn't really discussed because there wasn't a sort of a timed amount of time that was spent doing this particular task that you could use to calculate a heat expenditure. I mean, there's a work effort that's involved in doing these things, and somebody could actually come along to a calculation or at least make some reasonable estimates of the heat that's being expended by the body doing this job if they actually had determined how much the person was lifting and made a reasonable estimate over a period of time and talked about what the sunlight was, the direct sun, the effect of that, and so you'd end up with doing some assessments of how much the body was giving off and how much was being absorbed. Um, in this particular case, obviously, the, that none of that was done. It was just more of a, I'll bring in an expert who's going to tell me that this is a heat hazard problem. He'll make an adjustment in his head about what he thinks is a reasonable number, say that other people would agree with him, but didn't really provide enough evidence. So when, the, when it was all said and done, I think the review commission was not inclined to use the general duty clause for this kind of a hazard because of the issue about whether employers would have adequate notice. And if they were going to allow it to happen, it was going to have to be a really solid, well-made case where OSHA could establish clearly that there was a hazard, and that didn't happen in this case. Right. And then OSHA, or excuse me, the commission also found that there weren't uh, that the secretary didn't prove uh, that the employer failed to implement feasible and effective abatement measures. The the uh, secretary argued that uh, argued the five suggested abatement measures in the alternative, meaning that um, that the employer had to show only had to show that it implemented one of those, which it successfully did according to the commission. Um, so maybe the OSHA secretary uh, had the, it's possible he could have argued that differently to greater effect. Um, and then because that hazard wasn't there, the hazard wasn't present, uh, then there was no predicate for the second violation, um, the training violation as to the as to the uh, risks present at the work site. So, uh, Larry, how should heat stress be regulated? Um, what are your thoughts here? Sure. Well, ideally, it depends on your philosophy on this. It, I do believe it's a, a recognized hazard. I mean, one of the reasons that it's recognized, if California has a standard, it's had a standard for years, the National Roofing Contractors Association put out a booklet that basically addressed heat stress. There are many documents out there. Now, this, this case happened in 2012. NIOSH now has a criteria document that was issued in 2016. So there's no doubt that there's a recognized 
hazard in general. The question is, is it adequately going to be addressed without an OSHA standard or some OSHA enforcement? We all know how long it takes to get an OSHA standard through the process. This one isn't even in the uh, preliminary stages as far as we know. So we have to assume that the hazard, because it's there, is going to continue to be addressed by OSHA, that the agencies in the future is going to probably find a better case that they've learned from the way they presented this one, that this is not the way to present a heat stress case. Uh, and despite the you know the majority opinion, which is a reservation about using the general duty clause for this, I would assume that OSHA has now learned better what it needs to do to prepare a case. It's going to bring in some experts that are going to look at the particular task being performed by these employees and all the others, look at the bigger picture in terms of is this a heat stress situation in general regardless of whether anybody has an event and do a better job on their homework and, and making out the case, bring in an expert who can explain why the, the 15 degree adjustment's appropriate or if it's not, what the right number would be and it'll end up being a battle of, of the experts next time around, I would think, assuming the case is going to be properly litigated and eventually OSHA's going to win one if 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 an employer hasn't done what they need to do. Right. So the the takeaway message here might be, uh, as to the case, might be, be careful. OSHA, you know, OSHA's going to do a better job next time around. And as for dealing with heat stress, uh, make sure that you're up to speed on the best available information and that you uh, assess assess the work for, the workplace and. Uh, the factors that may contribute to heat stress. Here we saw uh, the strenuousness of the activity and the degree of exposure. Um, what controls and uh, standard procedures you have in place. Um, and, and consult your employees on, on what measures should be taken. Mm -hmm. Right. So there... There is an ACGIHTLV for heat stress. There is a um, software package that one professor from the University of South Florida has put together that implements it. And you could try doing some calculations with your employees. I had an OSHA complaint a couple years back where OSHA got a complaint that an indoor activity was causing people to be exposed to heat stress. So we used the... Um, the application to apply the ACGIH TLV came back to OSHA and said all these activities are below the level of concern and OSHA accepted that and walked away and said thank you and that was the end of the discussion on that complaint. So that's one alternative. I'd certainly look at the California standard. It may be that it goes a little overboard in requiring shade for everybody who's outside even when the temperature's below 80 but at least it give people an idea of what kinds of things are appropriate and and another quick note is um, you know MR here had pre-existing conditions but uh, under the Americans with Disabilities Act it's not always possible to talk uh, to ask your employers about their history um, so you have to be careful when you are uh, doing your due diligence there. 
All right. Well, that's all the time we have to, for today. Um, I want to remind you to uh, please follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, we provide uh, articles and news updates there. You can also listen to the OSHA 3030 as a podcast. So you're able to find that on the iTunes store, uh, on Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to remind you to uh, forward this uh, or forward your your OSHA 3030 invites to three of your colleagues um, so they can appreciate the program too. Uh, please also check out our sister programs. We've got the next OSHA 3030 on May 22nd at 1 p.m. We've got the next TOSCA 3030 on May 15th at 1 uh, reach 3030 at May 15th at 135, and we'll see about the next uh, FIFRA 3030. So uh, thank you very much for tuning in, and until next time, stay safe. <laughs>